Is there a direct link between fluoride in our water and low IQ? What are the similarities and differences between the fight against fluoride in Canada and similar battles in the United States? Does the politics behind water fluoridation trump the science demonstrating its toxic effects? What corporate and governmental interests outside of dentistry need the fluoridation of water to continue? Why does mainstream media continue to bury news of the downside of the great dental savior? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we're taking a look at the landmark trial pitting multiple citizens groups against the EPA and seeing the elaborate interests other than teeth that benefit from adding silico fluorides into drinking water and realizing the magnitude of efforts needed to stop it even after revealed by research studies. In our first half hour, we speak with Dr. Robert C. Dixon, Chair of Fluoride Free Canada, about concerns about the use of fluoride in Canada. Then in our second half hour, we hear an interview by journalist Derek Brose of theconscienceresistance.com with Michael Connett lead attorney for the Fluoride Action Network in the United States about the history of the current lawsuit, the harms of fluoride to developing brains, and the number of interests networked with the EPA to keep the fluoridation work going. On this week's program, Fluoride on Trial, a chemical too big to fail. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of February 9th, 2024. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. that this was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. Settlers to the territories enjoyed the bounty of the land and waters, but it came at the costs of the indigenous people who lived here first and resulted in colonialism and genocide. The settler descendants should recognize the crimes of their ancestors in the past and the present and pay reparation as part of maintaining a respectful partnership going forward. Now it's time for News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. Israel's intelligence apparatus was fully cognizant of what was going on well in advance. It was part of their, quote, false flag, unquote, agenda. Let us be under no illusions. Israel's false flag operation is a complex military intelligence undertaking carefully planned in liaison and coordination with U.S. intelligence and the Pentagon. Israel is a de facto member of NATO with a special status since 2004, involving active military and intelligence coordination as well as consultations pertaining to the occupied territories. In this section, 
we will provide evidence pertaining to the false flag operation waged by the Netanyahu government. That comes from the article, a false flag operation to justify the Israel-U.S. genocide against the people of Palestine by Professor Michelle Chosodovsky, posted February 8th. An unofficial fourth branch of government, the surveillance state, came into being without any electoral mandate or constitutional referendum, and yet it possesses superpowers above and beyond those of any other government agency save the military. It operates beyond the reach of the President, Congress, and the courts, and it marches in lockstep with the corporate elite who really call the shots in Washington, D.C. This is the new face of tyranny in America, all-knowing, all-seeing, and all-powerful, tread cautiously. Empowered by advances in surveillance technology and emboldened by rapidly expanding public-private partnerships between law enforcement, the intelligence community, and the private sector, the surveillance state is making the fictional world of 1984, Orwell's dystopian nightmare, our looming reality. That comes from the article, 2024 is the new 1984. Big Brother and the Rise of the Security Industrial Complex, or SIC, by John W. Whitehead and Nisha Whitehead, posted February 7th, originally published on the Rutherford Institute. It's going to be a very big push and will complement other protests taking place throughout Europe. Poland has the largest number of family farms in Europe, over one million. These farms are a vital resource, not just for national food production, but also for the maintenance of Poland's unique biodiversity. Particular to this Polish farmer's effort will be a central attack on Green New Deal, see below, which is, of course, a critically important issue vis-a-vis ensuring the future of all farmers or farming. Green New Deal links directly into the Agenda 2030 sustainability program whereby the WEF proposes to 100% disenfranchise farmers and substitute synthetic GMO laboratory foods for real food grown in real soil. That comes from the article, Polish Farmers announce strike against, quote, Green New Deal, unquote. The WEF wants to impose synthetic GMO laboratory foods by Julian Rose, posted February 7th. Instead of such a major shift, Greece could have simply condemned the SMO in its official statements and be done with it. This would have kept the relations with Russia largely intact, while there would have been ways to continue economic cooperation through various loopholes, just as many countries are already doing in order to circumvent sanctions. Unfortunately, the Greek government went a step too far, resulting in a completely unnecessary cooling of relations with the Kremlin. The damage is already done, but it's important to at least prevent further deterioration in the millennium-old Greek-Russian ties. 
Luckily, this is precisely what Athens did, as it just denied reports about the supposed transfer of advanced air defense systems to the neo-Nazi junta. That comes from your article, Does Ukraine Have a Functional Air Defense System? Greece denies reports about air defense systems transfer to Kiev regime. By Drago Bosnik, posted February 7th, originally published on Infobricks. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Dr. Robert C. Dixon has a degree in physical education and an MD from the University of Calgary and certification in paramedics from the SAIT in Calgary. Dr. Dixon co-led the anti-fluoridation program in Calgary from 1999, which resulted in water fluoridation being halted in 2011 and continues to actively volunteer with the issue of artificial water fluoridation. He's the founder of Safe Water Calgary, the chair of Fluoride Free Canada. I asked him to explain how he first got alerted about the dangers of fluoridated water. I'll try to do it briefly. It's a bit of a story, Michael. But uh, yeah, uh, as a busy family doctor for many years, there's so many things that come across our desk every month, every day. And uh, water fluoridation was one of those things that I didn't know a lot about, but I got all these glitzy pamphlets and information from Alberta Health and uh, the medical associations, and etc. And um, I just thought, yeah, it looks good, you know, they, they make it sound good. It's safe and effective, so, and it helps the poor kids. And being a humanitarian at heart um, and soul, I thought, well, let's, let's, um, let's vote for it. So when the plebiscite came up in 1998, uh, I voted for water fluoridation. It passed 54 to 30, um, 54 to 46% in that particular one. And um, then they kept fluoridated. They'd started fluoridating in Calgary in 1991. We were one of the laggards in Alberta because Red Deer started in 59, um, Edmonton and Lethbridge um, had started in about 1967. So Calgary had never fluoridated until 1991. And so um, the, the activists forced, forced another plebiscite in 98, but it passed fluoridation. And so it continued on dropping the level down to 0 0.8 from I think 1.0 at that time, uh, parts per million of hydrofluorosilicic acid in the water. And um, so after that vote, uh, the activist came to me and said, um, why did you vote for that? Have you read the science? And I said, well, no, I don't have time. I had you know, a lot of things in my plate. And they said, well, in this one, you should actually read the science because the science doesn't support it. So I took that as a challenge, read the science and went, oh, my goodness, what have I done? Went to my mentor and um, former prof, the University of Calgary Medical School, Dr. James Beck. And uh, had Jim read the literature, and just a handful of weeks later, he said the same thing. He says, Bob, this is awful. There's so much science against this. What are we doing? Like all these harms that we're causing to people to maybe save a cavity in a kid. Um, I mean, saving cavities is a good thing, but, you know, saving half a cavity to drop brain IQ and what other things, uh, it's, it's just not worth it. And so he said his infamous words were, we should have this out in three or four months. Well, it took us 12 years of campaigning with city councils, with universities, with deans of medical schools, with medical officers' health, et cetera. And we finally got convinced the city council without a vote, uh, without a public vote, 
to make a motion, which still is excellent. Uh, it's an excellent motion. You could put it out today for all the reasons that we shouldn't fluoridate. And so they stopped. Calgary City Council stopped fluoridation in Calgary in 2011. Mm. And then um, the the pro-fluoridationists just have been hammering away at City Council ever since that time. How dare you, you know, go, without a public vote, with, you know, helping you, you're taking this thing away to help the poor kids. And um, so they finally forced another uh, referendum in 2021, along with the civic election. And we, uh, we put a, we had a really good campaign uh, with that one. One of the things we did is we took, we sent this brochure um, along to uh, 410,000 Calgary homes with all the facts and science. Well, not all, all of them are in books. They're that long, but um, with a lot of facts and figures and science and data and a lot of people supporting our cause. And we lost resoundingly in that um, plebiscite in 2021. Could you indicate some of the uh, the the predominant harmful effects that that your research uh, and, and other people's researches brings to the surface? I can certainly do that, and this will not be all research, but I'll just go real quickly through the kind of bullet point form, if that's okay. So, freedom of choice. We have no freedom of choice if you put something in a city water. I mean, people most fifty percent of people don't even know it's in the water. So you're, you're right away you're abrogating freedom of choice. Fluoride itself is highly, highly toxic. It's as toxic as arsenic and lead. We don't want arsenic and lead in our city waters, and we don't want fluoride in there neither because it's as toxic to the brain, to the pineal gland, to the thyroid, to the kidneys, the heart, the digestive system, everything, the bones. It's toxic. We do not want this near our water, folks. Um, it's not necessary for one single body function. It's not a vitamin, it's not a nutrient, it's, it's not a useful drug for anything. It's not useful for a single body function. And when you put something in the water, why don't we have Prozac and aspirin and Lipitor and you know all these things in the water? Because you can't control the dose or dosage. If you're drinking 10 glasses of water and I'm drinking one, you're getting 10 times the dose. <laughs> you just can't control it in water. It's most harmful to babies and children. And those are the people who want to harm the least because they have a whole lifetime to live. And if we're harming them at a very young age, that's something that's going to last. If, we, if we're taking down IQ by 3 to 15 points, that's a big hit for a lifetime for a kid. Some people say natural calcium fluoride. Well, yeah, there's natural calcium fluoride in virtually all the Earth's crust and the Earth's groundwater. But calcium and fluoride tightly bind. And so when that is taken in, say, out of the Bow River, which has 0.2 parts per million and the elbow system in Southern Calgary, which has 0.3 parts per million, the body passes most of that through the kidneys and through the system. Mm. So there's better, safer ways to do it rather than putting it in our water. Yeah. So, and yeah, you also mentioned that it, it affects uh, IQ of individuals who drink it, right? Yeah. Well, not so much adults. That's, that's in, the, uh, in the womb. So uh, it crosses the, the placental barrier, it crosses the blood-brain barrier too. And um, yeah, so it's it's taking IQ away from babies and children. Yeah, and like there, so there's, there's like a lot of these studies, maybe 20 or? Um, right now, the, the, the last count we had was um, 86, 76 of the last 85 studies proved neurotoxicity in humans. Now, there's hundreds of studies in animals that prove neurotoxicity, but in humans, 
good quality studies, the last 76 out of 85 proved showed neurotoxicity, mm. brain damage, neurotoxicity. That's what we're putting in our water. So as I was saying, there's safer and better ways to do this. Toothpaste, if you want to put it on, topical toothpaste and then spit it out. Uh, gels, foams, rinses, you know, all the things you can get from the dentist. Um, but spit them out. Don't swallow them. They're not made to be used internally. Even the CDC, the Center for Disease Control in the States, has admitted that the effectiveness of, of fluoride, if any, is topically not ingested into our systems. The people who are in favor of, of fluoridating water, I mean, what are, what are they saying to, to counter the kinds of uh, studies that you're pointing to? One thing, it helps the poor kids. That's it? No, you've got a kid, a poor kid that's been raised with Coca-Cola and poor diet, junk foods, no dental care, maybe not even brushing of teeth, and they've got a mouthful of rotten teeth. Most often it's baby bottle decay because they've been sent to bed with bottles, sometimes even of Coca-Cola, but milks and other products. And so it's baby bottle because they suck with the upper upper part of the palate and teeth. And so the upper teeth are decayed and the lower teeth are okay. That's not anything to do with lack of fluoride. That has to do with poor diet and poor dental care. So yeah, um, they say it's helping the poor kids and the best of their studies, and they do have a lot of studies too, but they're weak and poor studies as the Cochrane collaboration, the gold standard of medical evaluation in the world has showed us. They have like 19 studies that are mediocrely in favor and everything else is throw out the window with the studies, pro-fluoride studies. But yeah, um, helping the poor kids, 25% decrease in cavities, they say. Well, that okay, that's the very top end that they can put out is 25% decrease in cavities. That sounds pretty good. But that equates, if you crunch the numbers, to one half to one cavity a lifetime in a kid. One half to one cavity a lifetime is their highest number they can come up with, 25%. And is that worth brain damage, thyroid damage, all those other harms that we went through? How did water fluoridation actually originate on the public scene in the first place? I mean, did it start as a, a discovery like penicillin where some scientists discovered uh, the beneficial effects and then the society just embraced it? It actually started back in the 20s and 30s when a dentist in the States uh, started noticing that there's kids with these really brown mottled spotted teeth and they didn't have very many cavities. And so he started digging into that and he found places in the States like in Colorado that had high levels of calcium fluoride. And if the levels are high enough, they can prevent some cavities, but it also destroys that brown and those spots and models are destruction of the enamel. And that's called fluorosis. And so he thought, well, maybe we can strike a, a sort of, uh, what would you call it? A medium point, a saw point in the middle there where there's not too much fluorosis and we can prevent some cavities. Find that middle point. And he sort of maybe kind of did with around one or 1.2 parts per million. But I mean, right now we get fluoride in so many different things. Water fluoridation is still the biggest component of fluoride intake into the human body, but we get fluoride in packaged foods, processed foods, a lot of the drinks that we get sprayed on vegetables to keep them and fruits to keep them from ripening when they travel from Mexico or California. So we get it from a lot of different things. And so our overall load of fluoride has gone up and up and up, especially with the brushing of teeth and kids swallowing fluoride too. So right now, fluorosis has gone just like this, skyrocketing 
And the United States is the main place where that's tracked through the CDC. And the CDC's own numbers have shown that fluorosis has grown from like 20% 20 or so years ago to 30, 40, 50. It's now at about 70% of teens in the States have fluorosis. Now, some of that, about 80% is going to be maybe smaller white spots in the back of uh, the back teeth that you might not even see. But then it starts moving into the front teeth. And then kids aren't smiling. Kids are going to the dentist to get these capped and repaired. Um, it can create a real boondoggle. And as a dentist downtown in Calgary said, he had one wealthy family that their teens were raised during the fluoridated area, uh, times of Calgary. And it was something like $70,000 each to repair their very severely damaged from fluoride teeth. Uh, could you talk about the role of media surrounding the, the dangers of fluoride? Well, I think you know the answer to that, Michael. The mainstream press is bought and sold by, um, you know, the Wall Street folks, the, the hedge funds uh, are... Um, uh, our major press in Canada is about 95% controlled by big business, which includes big pharma, and they call the shots. And so um, Canadian media, mainstream media, is not allowed from the highest levels to um, say a single word against water fluoridation. They can they can print stuff like in the Globe and Mail uh, last month, there's a big um, op-ed article by Juliette Gishon, the ethicist from the University of Calgary Medical School, and a couple of her colleagues, and just it was full of lies, innuendos, falsehoods, um, misstated facts. Uh, it was just an awful op-ed. And that's in the Globe and Mail, biggest newspaper in Canada. Can we get a, a rebuttal in there? No. Mm -mm. no we, have, we have like links to hundreds of articles and, and science studies and whatever. They we're not allowed. Well, my there's a saying in my business, you know, follow the money, right? I mean, whenever you have something like this, where you know, some there's a, a matter of containing something, you know, somebody's making a, a lot of big money, and if you try to restrict that, then uh, there's going to be pushback. So, uh, I mean, could you comment first of all, like where, how is this fluoride being produced, and and, and like who is making money from it? You hardly ever will see anywhere in the world pharmaceutical-grade sodium fluoride in, um, in the city water supplies. So it's hydrofluorosilicic acid that's scrubbed out of the fertilizer industry stacks in Florida and also in China is where we get most of ours. Some of ours comes out of the potash industry in Saskatchewan, a little bit maybe out of the aluminum industry in BC, but most of it comes from Florida and China. And so it's not allowed in, to go into the air because it's a total air pollutant. It's not allowed to go into the ground because it pollutes our ground sources. It's not allowed into our rivers, lakes, streams, oceans because it pollutes the water. It's highly toxic. So by strict law, it's not allowed in any of those places. So they've found a way, big business has found a way to go. If we could convince the, the doctors and dentists that it was good for kids, we could sell it to them and make some money rather than having to pay to dispose of all this and waste disposal plants. So instead of spending thousands of dollars a ton to dispose of this waste product, they get to dump it in our city waters and we get, we pay them for it. So it's, and it's uncleaned. It's, uh, it's, it's just unsafe. It's, it comes out with just traces though of cadmium, lead, arsenic, strontium, bromium, you know, all kinds of stuff, mercury, things that we don't want in our bodies. There's tiny traces in most of them. Some, you know, some will be different. Other Saskatchewan might be slightly different than out of China. But it always, it's not cleaned. It's not pharmaceutical grade. It's not human grade. It's just 
we clean our city waters with four or five processes. And at the very end, we inject the hydrofluorosilicic acid and it comes to your home. Is what there, an end around business. Yeah. Is there anything about uh, the, the fight in Canada that makes uh, the fluoridation uh, a unique challenge? I mean, you have colleagues in the United States. Are we fighting the same fight or is there, you know, forces weaker or greater in Canada that's, uh, I mean, just talk about some of the, the, this, the hmm. unique similarities and differences compared to other countries. That's an interesting question, that one. And that's hard to really tear apart. But generally, we tend in Canada to follow along in line with the CDC, the NIH, the FDA, and a lot of our policies and procedures in Canada are filtered down from those. That's a poor word. <laughs> Rolled down from those organizations. Um, so... Right now in the United States, um, we talked previously about the court case that's against the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency in the States. And it has been going on for seven years. Our Florida Action Network, which, of which I'm a member out of New York and New Jersey, um, they are plaintiffs, as is uh, Food and Water Watch, um, uh, Mums Against Fluoridation, there's a few others. And um, that case has been going on for seven years against the EPA for putting a known toxin in public water. And it's been quite, it's been a battle royale, seven years in federal court in California. And we've won every step, every little step of the way so far we've won because EPA has tried numerous things to try to quash or get out or stop that whole process. But we've won every step along the way. And today is start, uh, starts the last 14 days of um, the court case, and this should be the final fruition. There should be a decision come out at the end of 14 days on February 13th. Well, it won't come out on February 13th. That's the last day of the trial, but it'll take the judge a while to, you know, formulate his decision. But basically, it's a yes or no. Is water floor, is fluoride safe to be put in public water? Mm. Yes or no? And that and Judge Edward Chen has been on our, well, I wouldn't say he's on our side, but he's certainly said a lot of things along the way that support our side. Yeah, it's been going on for so long, uh, like years. Seven years. Yeah. So um, maybe you could could you maybe name uh, some other some of the victories you you've had in in Canada you, to date in terms of getting prominent communities to to actually get rid of fluoride. Well, the reason that they put so much time, energy, money into Calgary in 2021 for our plebiscite is that Calgary was the biggest city in the world, still is the biggest city in the world, to stop water fluoridation. But a point we have to make there, Michael, is that they always say that Calgary's behind the times now that we don't have fluoride and, uh, you know, get with the picture, get with the program. Well, 95% of the world is not fluoridated, Michael, 95%. And... 97% of Europe is not fluoridated. They're way more progressive. They got rid of fluoridation 20, 30, 40 years ago in most of the European countries. British Columbia, right next door to us here, British Columbia is 98% not fluoridated. And the kids' teeth, by the, the national studies, are better in BC, better in Vancouver than in Toronto that's been fluoridated since 1960s. Um, so it, it just doesn't make sense when most of the world's not fluoridated. And Quebec is the greatest example. They're at... 99% plus now of not fluoridated. They've got really strong associations working down there. Our friend, Dr. Jill Perrant is leading that, a lot of that. And um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's so disappointing. Most of the world's not fluoridated and they, they say we're backwards and behind the, behind the times, not true. 
And another point to me made about 99% is when you put it in the water, 99% of it goes to water my lawn out there, to flush my toilet, to have baths and showers, uh, industrial uses, car washes. <laughs> I mean, about 1% is consumed. And out of that 1% that's consumed, now I don't know very many people that drink tap water. Most of them are drinking bottled water, filtered water, reverse osmosis, uh, Canmore water out of the spring in Canmore. Um, yeah. Well, we were just about out of time. I mean, the, the minute or so that's remaining, is, is there any last points you'd like to leave our listeners with to uh, maybe emphasize their ability to take action or uh, their ability to uh, learn more? Well, as I say on my uh, business card, uh, water fluoridation, don't swallow it. But just, just keep in mind that there's study after study and more coming out every week, every month, that it shows it's a brain-damaging substance. It's neurotoxic. Do we want a brain-damaging damaging substance that's equivalent to arsenic and lead in our public waters? And that's a big no, because you can't control the dose or dosage. Dr. Robert Dixon, thank you so much. I really appreciated your uh, participation in our program. Thanks, Michael. We got through a lot in a very short time. You did a good job there. <laughs> Dr. Robert Dixon, uh, he is uh, chair of Fluoride Free Canada. His website is www.fluoridefreecanada.ca. Fluoridefreecanada.ca. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. The trial underway in San Francisco is a lawsuit pitting Fluoride Action Network against the Environmental Protection Agency. It started on January 31st, and as this episode first goes to air, six days have already been completed. Michael Connett is the Fluoride, Fluoride Action Network's lead attorney. Here he is speaking to journalist Derek Brose of the ConsciousResistance.com and of the LastAmericanVagabond.com about the background of the trial. It was recorded on February 3rd, 2024. My name is Michael Connett and I'm the lead attorney for the plaintiffs in the uh, lawsuit against the EPA on water fluoridation. You know, our lawsuit is looking at fluoride and its effects on the brain. And the first research indicating that fluoride could affect the brain was a long time ago, 1930s, a study of uh, fluoride-exposed workers. And the finding on the, with respect to neurological symptoms was kind of overlooked at the time. There was much more emphasis on effects on the bones. Um, but in the 1990s, a scientist in China began studying the effects of elevated levels of fluoride on children's IQ. And, and they did so because there were a number of animal studies coming out that were finding alterations in the brain of animals exposed to fluoride under laboratory conditions. So these Chinese scientists did these studies in the 1990s and were finding these correlations and you saw this kind of accumulation of animal research in some, some of these human studies. And then in the 2006, the National Research Council here in the United States um, uh, really flagged neurotoxicity as, as a potential problem for fluoride exposures and concluded in 2006 that fluoride does interfere with the functions of the brain. That was 2006. 
And that finding by the NRC really spurred a lot more interest and research on this subject. And in 2016, we filed a petition with the EPA based on this accumulating evidence um, calling for the agency to ban fluoridation under the Toxic Substances Control Act, TSCA. And TSCA gives EPA the authority to ban the particular use of an industrial chemical if it presents an unreasonable risk to human health. So that's what we did in 2016. We filed a petition. In February of 2017, EPA denied it. And then, April of 2017, we filed our lawsuit in federal court. The lawsuit is infamous for having sort of languished in court in different, you know, been stalled several times now as we're here sitting in 2024. Uh, what would you just want to offer to anybody who's just tuned in to the, uh, the lawsuit, you know, isn't really familiar with the background? Just some bullet points that you think are important for the American people to know about what has transpired so far. Well, first, we're the first citizen groups to ever go all the way to a federal trial in a citizen petition under the Toxic Substances Control Act. So in the 40 plus years of the act, no one's done that before. We did that in June of 2020. We had a seven day trial featuring expert testimony on both sides. Um, and the judge at the end of that trial stated that he wanted to wait to make his decision until the National Toxicology Program, NTP, released its um, systematic review of fluoride neurotoxicity. At that time in 2020, the NTP had already been working on the review for about four years. And the thought at that time was that the review would be published pretty soon, maybe in a few months. And so the judge put the case on hold because he wanted to see the NTP's conclusions. The NTP is the sort of the subject matter experts on toxicology issues at the federal government. They're within the National Institutes of Health. And so the case was put on hold. Now, we weren't thrilled about that. We were hoping to get a decision, but we could certainly understand the court's interest to, to hear sort of what the more of an authoritative assessment from this federal body. So the case was on hold and we waited and waited and waited. And two years later in the summer of 2020, I got word from someone in a position of knowledge, an anonymous source, saying that something was happening, political interference was occurring, and that the report was being uh, squashed. And, and it may never be published, may never be published. And when I heard that, it was, I went to the court and I, and I told the court what we found out. And I just asked we, to, to, to take the case out of the, the abeyance or out of the stay because we could, keep, we could wait forever, in which case we, don't, we won't have a case, right? And the judge agreed and agreed to, to put the case back on for a second trial. And then um, based on some additional back and forth with the DOJ, Department of Justice, we were able to secure... A, a copy of the draft NTP report on fluoride neurotoxicity, which had been completed by NTP scientists, but, that, but it was not allowed to be released. But we were able to secure a copy to see what it said. And that report, what is considered a draft report, is in evidence in this case and is very much a focus of, the, um, of this current second phase of trial. 
And what was the conclusion of the May 2022 draft report? The conclusion is that the human evidence on fluoride and IQ is consistent. It's consistent in showing a reduction in IQ as you increase your fluoride exposure. And it's not only consistent, uh, it's a large database, but it's not only a large database, um, the evidence is such that the NTP felt confident that potential sources of bias, like confounding or exposure errors or outcome errors, um, the kinds of things you look to to sort of interrogate whether an association between a chemical and a hazard is real, the NTP felt confident that these potential biases are not the reason for this association we see between fluoride and IQ. And that's a really significant thing, um, a significant finding, because it gives you confidence that this relationship between fluoride and IQ is real. It is causative. And through the lawsuit, you've submitted emails that you also obtained via FOIA, uh, Freedom of Information Act request, that show it wasn't just that the report was delayed for whatever reason, but there was actual, uh, it appears based on these emails, that there was actual orders from uh, officials, higher officials, to keep this report from being completed and released. Could you speak to that? Absolutely. So when I found out from this anonymous source that... Um, that there was something going on, there was political interference, I immediately began working with one of the plaintiffs in the case, Christy Lavelle, on filing a lot of FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Act requests, to a bunch of different federal agencies as well as state agencies. And we wanted to find out so and get those communications to see what happened. And we have got those communications, or a lot of them, and they paint a very clear picture. And this is so, I'll, I'll tell you the outline. April 28, 2022, the NTP tells the other agencies within the HHS, the CDC, NIDCR, FDA, um, that the report is done, the conclusions are set, and the NTP will be releasing the report in mid to late May. Okay? At that point in time, it was panic. You had the CDC and the NIDCR which are very aggressive promoters of water fluoridation for a long time here in the United States, they immediately went into action, are coordinating meetings with each other, and then speaking with the um, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, which is the, um, Rachel Levine is the Assistant Secretary of Health. They're also talking with the director's office of the NIH. And so you see this sort of communication and collaboration amongst sort of the dental interests within the HHS really pushing back and trying to stymie the NTP from releasing the report. Well, May 11th, 2022 comes and the NTP sends out another email saying the report is coming out in one week, seven days. The report will be released on our website on May 18th. So we were seven days away from that report being released to the public and Rachel Levine's office intervened and told the NTP put it on hold, it's not being released now, and we need to further review it. And then um, we have emails, uh, other emails that we've gotten from the CDC, which state point blankly, sorry, state point blank, that um, it was um, Assistant Secretary of Health, Rachel Levine, who made the decision to not publish the report. So the NTP wanted to publish it, they were seven days away from publishing it, but they were prevented from publishing it. 
And I think the reason they were prevented from publishing it is that the findings were not sufficiently compatible with this political um, issue of water fluoridation. It got in the way of a policy, but it really raises a question. Do you want your, you want your NTP, which is supposed to be all about science, independent science, do you want these political bodies to have a to have sort of the, a veto power over them, and that's what we see happening with fluoride, this veto power from political bodies over the scientists at the NTP. And some of those emails show that, show the review process, for example, and show that the NTP scientists continuously came back to their belief that the report was ready. Uh, there was, some of the anonymous reviewers were trying to um, ask them to make statements that would sort of downplay some of their conclusions. And I guess my question is, is any, has any of that information been allowed in court? The, you know, HHS involvement, this sort of behind the scenes, is the judge allowing that information to be brought into discussion? So we have submitted those, uh, many of the, or some of the emails um, that show the political interference to the court in a series of different uh, motions, uh, including to get the case um, taken out of the stay. But for purposes of this trial that we're now in, the judge has ruled that um, we're not allowed to introduce evidence of political interference. And the judge's um, reasoning is, I, I understand that basically the position is, this is a case about does water fluoridation present a risk, which is a scientific question, and the court really wants to focus on the science and not on you know, what some, you know, political faction within the HHS thinks. So it will not be evidence at trial. And just, I guess, putting the, the trial aside in your professional hat for a moment, how does it feel to you? As, is this something you've seen in other cases to see this governmental inter intervention? I mean, for some people, it might not be surprising. To others, it might be pretty astounding to find out that a government agency or multiple government agencies are trying or have prevented the release of this report. Well, it's, I, I'm a toxic tort attorney, so I bring lawsuits against big corporations. And so you see this type of stuff happening in, corpora you know, in corporate America, right? You know, um, suppressing adverse information that could affect the company's bottom line. But from a, from a governmental standpoint, I would say that it is it's unfortunately not surprising in the context of fluoride. And there is a longstanding history in the fluoride issue of our federal health agencies acting not like um, neutral umpires, if you will, trying to uh, understand and communicate the science to the public. They act like cheerleaders. Their job is to promote, 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 and promote some more. That's their position with water fluoridation. Just keep promoting it. Don't let, don't let, don't say anything that would question it, right? And so what you have with water fluoridation, and this goes back to the very, very beginning, like back to the early 1940s, is you have a pattern of data suppression, a pattern where findings that were adverse to the fluoridation program were airbrushed away, and all we, the public, were told was this superficial sort of um, this almost like a fairy tale about fluoride. It's all good all the time, no problems whatsoever. It will make your teeth amazing. There's nothing to be worried about. Give your kid as much as you can. Like we have been given such an, uh, 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 a caricature 
of fluoride for so long that that really has had a very significant effect, not only on public understanding, but on scientific understanding and the public health community's understanding. And so one of my hopes and something I've worked a lot on is really trying to bring light to this problem of data suppression at the very beginning. Because it's, it's my view that the foundation of the scientific foundation upon which this mass fluoridation paradigm took off in the 1940s, 1950s was built on a corrupted science. And, 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 and so I, I think that there needs to be much more attention paid to that so that we can sort of move beyond it. And I guess that's the job for the journalists who are willing to talk about this. Could you speak to that for a moment of what it's been like to be involved in this lawsuit for going on eight years now? And have you heard from any of the corporate media, any of the mainstream media interest in talking to you or just discussing the trial? Well, uh, CNN was interested for quite a while. We were communicating with CNN producers for over a year. And then on the eve, about a month or two before the first trial, they basically backed out and didn't want to do anything. Um, we have had some good, um, um, good news articles published on the case, mostly from smaller outlets, absolutely nothing from any large outlet, completely zero, no interest whatsoever. Like, like the New York Times couldn't care less about this case. Washington Post could not care less about this case. You know, you name it, NBC, ABC, CBS, they could not care less. This is as, as low priority for them as you name it. I mean, it's zero interest. And that is, you know, probably not surprising to you and is reflective, I think, of a media paradigm that is uh, unfortunate at this time. So let's speak to, or if you could kind of maybe elaborate and offer any thoughts on some of the interests that benefit from trying to debunk the NTP report, for example. You mentioned, like, obviously there are dental interests, but there's also involvement of uh, aluminum, phosphate mining. Could you speak to some of that? Like, what type of uh, corporate or governmental interests would have... Uh, interest in keeping this out of the public's attention. Okay, so whenever I am asked this question, I always feel the need to to make a distinct a distinction. Okay, I, I'd say there's the there's the politics in the early days of fluoride, the 40s and the 50s. That I know well because I have documents. Okay, I'm an attorney. I like I I need a document to base what I say on, right? And I have documents from the 40s and 50s. I have less documents. But today, to see which of the industrial actors is still at play, okay? So I just want to make that clear up front. When I talk about special interest or industrial interest, the documentation really is predominantly early days. From the beginning of fluoridation. From the beginning of fluoridation. So if you want, I can start there. Okay. So how did this happen? How did we get water fluoridation, okay? I view it as a perfect storm. You had a multitude of powerful special interests that each had their own, they, 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 which each stood to gain from this policy. So let's break it down. What are some of these interests? First, you had um, organized dentistry like the American Dental Association. 
The ADA, as with, its, uh, as with the American Medical Association, the AMA, were terrified that the government was going to socialize dentistry or socialize uh, medicine, meaning the government would start to become involved in providing dental care and thereby um, kind of interfere with the uh, ADA's monopoly on, uh, on dentists, right? And so the ADA looked at water fluoridation and saw it as a very appealing alternative. Like, don't, don't cut into the dentist monopoly, throw some industrial chemicals in the water, and then that's how you can deal with oral health. So that's special interest number one. Special interest number two, the sugar industry. The sugar, in, we had a, a large tooth decay problem back in the 1940s, right? Um, and the sugar industry was feeling some heat and they certainly didn't want the government's approach to dealing with tooth decay to be cutting down on sugar consumption. So again, for the sugar industry, fluoride was very appealing. Fluoridation was very appealing. Don't look at us, put some industrial chemicals in the water. So that's special interest number two. Special interest number three is a, a poorly understood fact from a lot of us here in the United States, and that is that fluoride was a major major industrial pollutant from the largest industries in our country, the aluminum industry, the steel industry, the various chemical industries, the fertilizer industry, and the bomb program, which is a kind of a combination of private and public actors. But they had, there was massive fluoride liabilities, you know, because fluoride was being released into the air from these facilities without any pollution control. And the thing about it that was so bad for industry is once you admitted that fluoride into the air and it got into the grass, cows ate it. They would just, they would get crippled. The cows would get crippled. Their teeth would fall out. You, and it was, it's like plain to the naked eye that they're being poisoned and fluoride, you could document fluoride as the cause of it. So industry couldn't really airbrush it away. Like farmers had cows that were walking on their knees. Wasn't there an incident in New Jersey that was the cows, uh, the farmers found their cows and crops and everything? Right. South Jersey, I mean, but there were incidents all across the country. I mean, all across the country, you had fluoride poisoning incidents around these facilities. And they were, they, and to, to give you a sense of the extent of fluoride liabilities from, from air pollution, between about 1950 and 1970, there was more liability for fluoride air pollution than the top 20 air pollutants combined. So industry felt very, they, um, they were very concerned about it and industry certainly, and the aluminum industry um, was, the, was the one industry that kind of was in the 30s kind of promoting the idea of, well, hey, you know what? Uh, Floyd may actually have some beneficial effects, okay? And in 1939, um, the first ever proposal to fluoridate water was made by a scientist named Gerald Cox. Gerald Cox worked at the Mellon Institute, which, and was funded by two industries, the sugar industry and the aluminum industry. And Gerald Cox stated in 1939, that the present trend towards the complete removal of fluoride from water may need some reversal because of the tooth decay benefits. And I think that's an interesting point right there because uh, in the 1930s, the trend was to eliminating fluoride from water because there was a growing appreciation in the scientific community that fluoride is a toxic compound like lead and arsenic. 
And the like you saw a lot of scientific research back then on the thyroid gland, on various components of systemic health. And so in 1939, you have this sugar-funded, aluminum-funded researcher saying, hey, maybe we want to add it to water because it's so good for teeth. So those are three of the, the major sort of influences um, on the private actor level. But then you have the government, and that might be, the, that's the fourth special interest, but it's actually within the government. And that is that the government, um, it was World War II, and they were trying to build the bomb, right? The Manhattan Project, this large, sprawling industrial enterprise. And fluoride was the chemical that they found could be used to enrich the uranium and uh, uranium hexafluoride. And so they needed massive quantities of fluoride in order to build the bomb. And that resulted in a ma large scale exposures of fluoride to the workers who were helping to build the various components of the bomb. And, um, and, and what you see in the documents is that the toxicologist and the, the, the medical director of the Manhattan Project were very concerned about fluoride. They were very concerned and and that fact there is, I mention it because the, government's, the government approached fluoride not like, oh, let's just investigate this issue and, and just communicate with the public about what we're finding, good or bad. It was not that. Like, the government did not approach fluoride from like, like an ivory tower, like, oh, let's, let's just research fluoride and see how it affects human health. They researched it. And they, they actually have a policy of the, of the Atomic Energy Commission, 1947, where if there's research indicating that our process chemicals, i.e. Uh, like chemicals like fluoride or uranium, are harmful, that publishing information about that would be detrimental to the government's interest. Because the government is, a, the, is partly responsible for exposing workers and communities to these high levels of fluoride. So the government didn't, like fluoride, the, the government was con conflict, had a conflict with fluoride too. So those are the four major sort of interests at play in the 1940s. Now why, why the decision was made to fluoridate, you know, you can't see any particular document and say, aha, here's, here's, here's the, uh, you know, the uh, smoking gun. That doesn't exist. We don't have that. And, I, and so uh, I also would say, to be fair, and I, I, I always want to make clear that there were a lot of people like dentists, individual dentists and people who saw the tooth, tooth decay problem that we had and were really, really enthusiastic about this idea that we could like eradicate tooth decay by adding this compound to water. So there was a lot of optimism and a lot of good intentions and I think that that optimism and good intentions was sort of exploited by certain actors for various reasons. But uh, the long story short is this is not, this story of fluoridation is not a story of a dentist like being like, I have found that fluoride is good for teeth. We must now fluoridate our water. We're going to help our children. It's a story that's much more complicated than that. I know you know you don't want to talk too much about what's coming up next and everything, but assuming you win, 
what would take place then? Would, you know, at the end of this time here in San Francisco, is the judge expected to make a ruling right away, or is it going to be months down the line, years down the line? And if he does side with, uh, with the Fluoride Action Network and the plaintiffs, would that immediately be the end of water fluoridation, or you know, what comes afterwards? So um, I don't know when the judge uh, will make the decision. I expect it will be relatively soon at the close of trial, so within weeks or maybe a month or in somewhere in that, in that realm. If the court finds that fluoridation presents an unreasonable risk uh, in the form of neurotoxicity, then the EPA will be mandated by law to initiate a rulemaking proceeding to eliminate that risk, okay? So um, the, one, the one thing is EPA may appeal the judge's ruling, in which case we'd have some appellate procedure here in the, in the court system. But assuming we win on appeal, then the EPA has to eliminate the risk posed by fluoridation chemicals in the drinking water. And, you know, it's kind of obvious. How do you eliminate the risk created by adding fluoridation chemicals to drinking water, well, you just don't add them to the water. You, you stop adding them. And that's what we certainly are hoping EPA will do. That was Michael Conant, lead attorney for the Fluoride Action Network in the fluoride lawsuit, speaking with Derek Brose of theconsciousresistance.com. You can watch the interview on YouTube, Rumble, and other video programs. It's called Fighting the Forces Behind Fluoride, an interview with attorney Michael Conant. That's our program for today. For the next two weeks, we will be airing special programming intended to raise funds for CKUW, the station that hosts the Global Research News Hour. Fund Drive actually kicks off today, so listen carefully and be generous with your funds, as CKUW is hoping to raise 60,000 Canadian dollars necessary for strengthening and broadening the broadcasts that make it possible. You'll hear much more over the days that follow, but if you'd like to donate right away, go to ckuw.ca forward slash donate. Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks once again for joining us.